Oh, hi there. It's James. Um, just interrupting this broadcast to say, if you like the podcast, can you please go onto iTunes, subscribe to it, leave a review, say how much you like it, and maybe get in touch with us. <laughs> oh, hi there. I'm Will from Drop Wine, um, and I'm just checking in to tell you how excited we are to be sponsoring The Kitchen is on Fire. Drop is an app for London wine lovers and we deliver wine from our charming little shop on Drury Lane in Covent Garden, anywhere in London, in zones one and two and one or two other places. We've got a wonderful selection of wines. Go to dropwine.co.uk to download the app and if you've never used it before, we'll give you £10 off your first order when you enter Kitchen on Fire in the promo code. Thanks guys. I didn't think about it, it just came out. Uh, again, I'd say that applies to most things that come out of your mouth. <laughs> oh, hi, Sam. James, you all right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. How was, Busy. How was your pickup? Pickup was good. I wasn't picking up drugs, if listeners are oh. wondering. Um, I was picking up my son, who... Gives me a different kind of high. The oh. high of love. Lovely stuff. First day of school. First day of school. How do you enjoy it? Do you know what? It wasn't the emotional fest I thought it was going to be. No? No. And I, mean, I reckon, though, I have a theory, which I'm going to stand okay. on. The reason people get really emotional about their kids going to school um, isn't so much that it's like, oh, my little kid's all grown up and all crumbsy. It's... Uh, they remember how shit school was and they're like oh my fucking god I feel so sorry for you you've got to go through 13 years of shit and it's beginning now um, yeah I think and maybe because I didn't hate school that much but I never feel that fondly about my schools school times but um, yeah maybe that's why I was like oh. I mean also you definitely undercut the emotion of the occasion by your main concern about it was it's changed your bus route to work <laughs> That was a concern. <laughs> yeah, because you loved that bus, didn't you? I love that bus. Mate, I just got into a very nice rhythm with the 26 bus. I, jumped, I dropped home at his nursery. I done, It was a two-minute walk, 26 bus, straight to three minutes walk from the office. Um, and I very much enjoyed just sitting on there with my laptop open and getting some work done, because it kind of feels like free work. Yeah. Because then you get to the office, the inbox was empty. I'd done it. I'd done all my little bitty jobs for the day and I could just lean in to some hang time with my friend Sam Sam. <laughs> Basically count the minutes until lunch midday. Yeah. We'd be down in Philomena's midday, pint of Guinness, maybe two. Just prepping for Celeste at the Lanesborough. Prepping for, for early lunch. a big lunch at Celeste at the Lanesborough. And now it's like, ah, shit, what am I doing? It's all right. Tom's friend Tom's mum, Saga. Tom's friend, yep, Carol. She said, mate, 242, it's just there. But I have to change. But it's still all right. It's still what all is right. What's that bus change? Yeah, so I get on 242 Tacky Sench, right. Central, some people call it. Yeah. And then I change on 38, and here I am. So it's fine. It's fine. Yeah. Um, but he was happy as a little clam. I'd enjoyed his first day. Gave, I got him a Cornetto afterwards. Nice. So that was all good, yeah. Does he follow the uh, Hurley family mantra? Be kind to people? No. <laughs> Don't be a cunt? 
Don't get bombed. C bombs last week, by the way. We'll get into that. By me? By Giles. Oh, yeah. Our last week's guest. I almost thought we should have said something at the beginning, like, if you're offended by the C word, you're going to hear it a lot over the next hour or so. And I can sh- assure everyone that I definitely cut a vast number right. of them from the pod, so yeah. maybe I should have cut some more. We'll get onto that, though. Um, what did you just say? Well, sorry, your, your family motto? Yeah. Mantra. Mantra, yeah. What is that? Don't be bullied, be the bully. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a good no, one. It's a real good one. He said that when uh, his teacher was reading a story, some chick kept hitting him. And I said, did you ask her to stop? He said, yeah. I said, did she? And he said, no. Oh. And I said, did you clock her one? Yeah. I didn't say that. No. And also, by the way, I'm not making light of bullying. That's horrible. Somebody put something really nice. Actually. Do you know who it was? It was David Constable. Yeah. A uh, listener to the pod who had his birthday the other day. So this would be a week's out of date, time, whatnot. But happy birthday, David. Um... And on Instagram, he posted a lovely thing, which, you know, you could say, oh, that's twee or whatever, but it was about new kids starting at school or uni or whatever it is, starting a new thing. If you see somebody who's maybe not wearing the cool clothes, not looking very popular, give them a smile, say hello, because you don't know how much that will mean to somebody who might be struggling with the nerves. How many fucking kids follow him on Instagram? I know, it was a bit weird that it was posted there, but it was a nice thing. It was, it was nice. And I thought, you know what, that's nice. Yeah, but, but you didn't think that as a kid. You were like, <laughs> no, real piece of shit, aren't you? No, good guy, good guy. Um, James, I have one note which I can't believe I didn't tell you about last okay. week. So, in the course of our break from the ticky off, I went to the pig. Yeah, it was a gift, a Christmas gift uh, from my mother and father. So my wife and I went there for a night. So we went to Lyme Regis, went to Hicks. It was fine. It was nice. We went to the pig, which was fine. It was nice. But, James, honestly... You said the pig was shit. <laughs> it was... My mum listens Thanks for the this. present, Helen. Yeah, my mum Seriously, you let Sam down. He said it was, it was dis- mum's fault. He said it was disgraceful. <laughs> the, the hotel itself was very nice. Room, really nice. But there was one drawback about the room. Um, uh, no Johnny's on the pillow, obviously, because it's a classier joint than that. Um, I think that's the classiest move. Uh, what was the drawback? I don't know whether it's a drawback. I had an experience, James. There were no ghosts. There was a ghost. I think I saw a ghost. I'm not even saying it's a joke. I told my wife in the morning, and the ghost, in a way, sort of spoke through me the day after. This is not a joke. This happened. So in the middle of the night, I wake up, and to the left of the bed, and I think a lot of this happened because we were sleeping on our wrong side of the bed. Yeah, right. So I was feeling a bit weird anyway. Woke up in the middle of the night, opened my eyes, and to the left of the bed is a big um, wardrobe with a mirror on the front. And I sort of open my eyes, and I'm looking in the mirror, and there's a figure in the mirror. That's often what happens in mirrors. Yeah, but I'm in, I'm in bed, my wife is asleep next to me, And I couldn't really move, but I was just watching it. And it wasn't, like, shaking around, but it was moving, sort of on the spot. Not jogging or whatever, but (laughs) just kind of... And not swaying like it was drunk. Right. But I couldn't see the face. It wasn't sort of features, but it was a woman. I knew it was a woman. Just the middle of the night? Middle of the night. Had a few drinks at dinner? A few drinks at dinner, yeah. Yeah. I don't... Do you usually hallucinate in the middle of the night when you have a few drinks? No, no, no. no Curtains billowing? Nope. No. So no curtains? No. So anyway, so I saw it, and I wasn't scared, which is weird, because you'd think I would be, or I'd be amazed, but I just was watching it, and I'm like, oh, that's a figure. And the only point that I got a bit scared was in the morning when I woke up, 
uh, I realised that I was looking at this ghost in the mirror. So it was actually stood directly at the end of our bed. Because I got Ab to stand there, and I was like, that's the exact angle. So it was stood at the bottom of our bed looking at us. And Ab said, oh, my God, weren't you scared? And the ghost, I think, sort of spoke through me, because I immediately just said, ghosts decide if we're scared of them. And I didn't think about it, it just came out. Uh, again, I'd say that applies to most things that come out of your mouth. What? You don't think about them, <laughs> they just come out. It's true, honestly, I can't believe I haven't told you this. You ask Ab about it. Well, she'll verify something that she slept through. Or verify the story. <laughs> well, you could have dreamt the whole thing. I was awake. Mm, sounds. I mean, that's what they thought in Inception. Yeah, that's true. Maybe it was so, a dream within just a dream. Nolan, you didn't know. You Nolan the hell out mm. of me. Well, there you go. So that's the first time I think I've actually seen a ghost. Mm. And yeah, it's an old house and whatnot. Oh yeah, there you go. Exactly. People only see them in old houses, don't they? Uh, often. Yeah, more often than not. That's because that's where. Ghosts would be not really. Why wouldn't they be? In, why would they be in a modern day block of flats? Because well, I'm so going to find some modern day hauntings or an office haunting. I'm sure you will. If you Google it, it's there. See exactly. Um, it's a frustrating episode this Sam because it's the 9th of September that this goes out, which is meant to be the day um, we open Sands and do- Sands <laughs> Sandwich Sons and Daughters, our sandwich shop in Kings Cross. Um, but we don't know what's going on because at the moment there are tiles in Ireland. Uh, my joke is that our sandwiches are flawless, but unfortunately, so is our shop currently. Oh, that's good. So we're not sure when we're. Was open. that the joke you made earlier? Yeah, I didn't and everyone get it. looked very blankly. At yeah, me. didn't get it. Yeah, didn't get it because it doesn't have a flaw. Yeah, that makes sense. Two different spellings yeah, of flaw. Flaw. Homonyms. Claw, claw spelling. Yeah, as a no. The claw. sandwich is the claw spelling flawless. Exactly, claw. Claw The floor. shop is claws light spelling flawless. Do you reckon that would have been a better spelling for that uh, Lyle's fella's place? F-L-A-W? Yeah. Flaw. Nice, that's an answer. It would look better written down. Error. Yeah. Yeah, okay. um, Yeah. So there's a lot of chat with builders. I'm getting a bit ratty on the WhatsApp group because they keep saying, yeah, it's all right, we'll hand the unit over on Monday. I was like, hang on. You're meant to be handing it over on Friday. The only thing that is stopping that are a few little tiles. Most of the tiles are down. It's a few little cuts. That's all that needs doing. And suddenly you're like, yeah, but it's going to be a building site. It's going to be a mess everywhere if you train over the weekend. It's like, no, no, no. It's meant to be done on Friday. All that needs to be done over the weekend is someone to come in and put these little fucking rectangles in. So what, it's just bullshit going on here, Sam, and I'm it calling is. it. You did, yeah. It was good. Because that's the first time you've been ratty on that WhatsApp, and I get ratty on it regularly. Mm. So it's good. Now there's no good cop. There's just two bad, bad dudes. It's like Crow and Crow. Are they confidential? Oh, yeah, yeah. Double down on the Crow. Yeah. No Pierce. Pierce can fucking do one. Yeah. With any luck, we will be opening at 5pm this evening for a soft evening, 50% yeah. off sandwiches. And don't be a little twat and come in and say... Oh, it's 50% off sandwiches, and I listen to the podcast. Here's the evidence. So I want another 25% off that. Otherwise yeah, that's be just ki- out of order. You'll be kicked out. Yeah. And we'll, we'll note your name down. We'll put a pad by the front door in case lots of people do it. Note down all the names, and then next week on the pod, we'll absolutely diss them. We'll find their Facebook pages. You allowed to do that? Yeah, it's public. Sorry. But so we will go at them. Doxing. Is that doxing? I don't know. What's that? It's doxing where you pile on. Oh, yeah, I don't want to do that. Nah. But anyway, but just don't be that person. That sucks. But anyway, in more positive news, James, I've got to say that despite the stress and nausea 
and rage of heading quickly, well, slowly, whatever, towards opening. We had a bloody good day yesterday. Long day, tough day, but it was awesome. Testing. Yeah. It was testing. Yeah, and we did a lot of testing. Yeah. What was the highlight of the day? The of chicken testing? sandwich. The chicken sandwich is knock out. Chicken sandwich is the best sandwich in London. Okay, you're saying it. I'm absolutely saying it. Well, I haven't had a better sandwich. And I've been most places and eaten a lot of sandwiches. But I would yeah. put it up there. It's pretty good. Yeah, yeah. Very happy with that. Merguez, almost there. Prawn. Prawn's been our white whale. Yeah, that's true. We struggled to get that right, and I feel we're just about there. It's that dressing you whipped in there, James. Well, yeah. the old dressing whipper is yeah. what they call me. They do, and that's what you did. Pickled ginger and jalapeno dressing on the slaw. It's good stuff. Really ties the room together. Um, yeah, no, that was good. That was good. There's it, it's, it's, it's a lot to do in the next few days, but uh, with any luck, if, if we're not open Monday, then we'll be open Tuesday evening, unless yep. there's some other catastrophe. But I th- touch wood, I think we're beyond <laughs> that. <laughs> Famous Alester words. Uh, but yeah, we'd love to see you there at the shop. We really would. It would be nice. We've even briefed our team that if anyone shows that they subscribe to the pod, 25% off the Sanger. Yeah, and also they'll like you a lot because as part of their sign-up to come and work for Sons and Daughters, they have to subscribe to the podcast, like it on iTunes, leave a review, <laughs> <laughs> or we don't give them a job. Yeah. They actually have to sign a document. Yeah, and there's a qu- we're working on a quiz to see have they started at the beginning and worked their way up to episode 197, as this is. And uh, if not, then they'll be donezo. Yeah. Hell to pay. Indeed. Um, so how British do you feel, Sam? Um, well, I am British, but... I'm 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 cons- uh, I know it's a loaded question. I know it's a loaded question given yeah. what's going on at the moment. But just p- take take all of that hell out of it. Yeah. And how, I mean I know you love American things, but like do you you know, do you feel oh I'm quite sort of British in my approach to things and quite this and that? Oh, no, I don't think so. No. I think I'm quite Irish. Ah, okay. I think that's the side of my family that comes out in me. I'm going to whip your tail, okay. and you're going to whip me back what you would have done. You whip a lot. Um, but, uh, okay, I've lost my train of thought now. What's your favourite ride at a fairground? Teacup ride? No, it's the big whipper. Oh. <laughs> Who's your favourite data install guy currently working <laughs> at Sons and Daughters? Mark Whip. Correct. Um, yeah, I mean, like, Britishness... To... to and I know that some of them I follow and vice versa, but I will hate you a little bit if you either retweet or like anything by the very British problems fucking stupid account on Twitter or the Queen UK spoof account. Neither of them are funny. There's usually a gag about it raining by the Queen, but raining spelt like <laughs> E-I-G-N. And then the British problems are like, oh, when, when you see a colleague from work on the tube and you pretend you've choked on your quavers. Not funny. That was funny. But, <laughs> but well, Brit- what has caused this? I did the most British thing ever the other day, and my daughter is ill as a result. <laughs> <laughs> so we were in Oldborough over the weekend. Yep. Last, last um, sort of family gathering... As in me and last family gathering, me and the wife and the kids before term starts for my children and sons and daughters starts and 
we've got a month of nightmarishness at minimum um and so went to Aldborough and it's a lovely house that we go to and it's next to the pub so every evening at sort of five o'clock we go take the kids tea down to the pub and on this particular occasion Rosie was uh gone to do some shopping or something so I'd put Tom outside the pub at a bench said to the people on the next table can you just keep an eye on him he's fine but just while well, I pop in with and Nora was being a nightmare so I was like I better keep her contained so I brought her in. She's under one arm, right? Yeah. I ordered the drinks. A uh, p- couple of pints, two lime and sodas for the kids. And uh, say to the bartender, can I get two straws for the children? And he, uh, as he goes to get the straws, he sneezes into his hand, picks up the straws with the same hand, puts them in the drink. Wow. I was too British to say, mate, that is fucking disgusting and you should be ashamed of yourself. Make those again. Wash your hands and get, you know, do, you know all yeah. of that. So I just pretended it was all cool. Picked up the tray with the drinks on. Got Nora under the other arm. Yeah. And I go outside. And I have no time to remove the straws. Yes. And I know that if I put the drinks down and then take away the straws, Tom will lose his shit because he loves a straw and who right. can blame the guy? So I just like, I'm going to hope for the best. And Nora's been ill ever since. Yeah. yeah, but you know what? You would do that. You, what you could have done is just dump them. Knock them over. Oh, yeah. I mean, keep your pint. Always. Your pint's fine. But you bought two. One for Rosie. She, uh, I mean, she was No, back. she's gone. She's gone somewhere else. You could put those down before she gets back. And then wait for her to come back. Say, stay away from Sneezy Pete, but bring us back some fresh lime and sodas for the kids. Or give him a beer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, it was so weird. I was like, this is disgusting. Like, look at this gribbler. He's just... <laughs> gribbler. Anyway. So... It was, a, it was a moment. Wow. Who's on the pod, James? Um, we've got Narvid Nazir, who is the group exec chef, I believe is his title, for Dishoom. And... Uh, uh, I'm sort of in awe of anything of that magnitude that maintains the level of quality that I think Dishoom has. We had a good lunch there the other day. You usually only go for breakfast. You've never been for anything other than breakfast, have I've you? I've been for dinner. Have you? Yeah, yeah. Twice. Oh. Yeah. I thought you were more of a breakfastman. Well, I am. I'm, I, I, I'm rarely sort of in the mood for <clears throat> uh, curry, to be honest. It's not my sort of one of my go-tos. But when I want one, I really want one. And Dishoom's great. Yeah, we took Kit there a while ago, and she liked it as well. But they're absolute machines. It's extraordinary. I just, I mean, I don't know how much he's going to be... Able to uh, divulge in terms of how it operates, but it's a like I don't know how many fucking covers they do at that King's Cross one, but it is. You know, I've worked in the van at, at King's Cross on a Saturday, and there is a queue there from nine in the morning until they close. There is a queue of people outside. I mean, I, I, yeah. I mean, I'm going to start with that. How many fucking covers do you get at King's Cross, mate? It's a joke. Well, isn't it got How the, many dead lambs are there? Hasn't it got the highest turnover of any restaurant in the country or something? By square foot, allegedly, oh, maybe. But, right. you know, everyone loves those sort of stats. Yeah. I bet we'll get some stats out of him. Do you reckon he's a proper stato? Who knows? Yeah, we don't know. That's why we get people That's on, why, isn't it? To find out. Yeah. To really get into their secrets. So, coming up next, Narvin Azir. <laughs> Perfect. Um, 
Sinara, thanks for thanks for coming on the Kitchens on Fire. I love it. I'm really excited. Have you uh, have you done many podcasts before? This is my first one. I've been on radio actually this afternoon on BBC. All oh, right. But other than that, no, no, this is new for us. Um, so what we for me definitely. Fantastic. Well, we didn't mention the intro, which is sort of why you're here. Is that um, the the Dishoom book is out now? Mm. I haven't somehow got a copy. Oh, okay, brilliant. Good job. Thank you so no, much. I think, so, I think one might have been sent, it might be sitting in Bethnal Green Post Office. I'm really bad at going Thank you very up. much. Thank That's you. very kind. Oh, and a tote bag. Um, so how does it feel to have given away all your secrets? Oh, God. Let's start that again. Oh, you reminded me <laughs> of... Look, I mean, um, it was hard. I wouldn't lie. As a right. chef, it's always hard to to give Beautiful. give away your hard-earned recipes. Some of them are actually really hard, and it took a long time. It's it's hard back home to to learn the trade, and especially some of the old school chefs I work with, they weren't very happy to have a outsider, as they call them, because for them it's family run. So, right. So uh, they 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 would pass it on to their to their son, but right. but not to a um, a young catering college kid who wants to get into the industry and so it was hard um but eventually eventually when um uh, we opened the shoe and, and nine years down the line we have these beautiful set of recipes some of the dishes were on the menu some were some still are on the menu and it was really hard to actually think of printing them all and then putting it out there for people to, yeah. to read and, and cook from it but i think that was um once we, we were past that initial anxiety i think it was all good uh, I'm really proud of this book. I think this is something which is actually genuine labor of love. Uh, we actually gave away all our, all our secrets pretty much. <laughs> well, I was Googling, all, yeah. funny enough, uh, just over the weekend, I was I was tr- trying to find a, a recipe for Black Dahl and yours. You have it here, uh, no? uh, Well, but I think, it, was it run in a newspaper over the weekend? Yes, it was in Times, yes. Yeah, so yeah. I, got, I got lucky. They were the first one to run a, a feature on the book. Um, uh, but, yeah, I mean... The, don't need to come to the shoe anymore, which is uh... <laughs> <laughs> that was the, that, that was the thinking. That once you print the book, no one's going to come to the shoe. But I'm yeah. sure that's not true. And, uh, I don't think it works that way. Were yeah. you tempted to? So, I don't know if you know about like that. There's a theory that the River Cafe famously write their recipes slightly wrong in their books, so that they're wow. never quite as good. A, so you go to the River Cafe. And B, so that you're like, oh, wow, they're obviously really talented chefs they have there because I, I've tried to cook the recipes and they don't work. <laughs> Were you tempted to sort of make a few typos and oh gosh, measurement errors? Um, definitely tempted, <laughs> but, but didn't do it. Um, I think it was very important for us. I mean, we, we mulled over this book for literally years and we only started, I think it took long two years uh, to put this together, but the idea of a book was simmering, simmering around for literally years and... Um, yeah, because ca- you definitely waited quite a while. Yes. You had the impression you guys could have done it. I think it does feel that it has come a little bit late, but we don't know. I mean, for us, it was just a matter of um, do we have enough stories to, 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 to tell? And, um, and also, I think we wanted to be very honest with the cookbook. As a chef, I, I cook from cookbooks, and um, sometimes they're brilliant, fantastic, and sometimes you do come across uh, one-off, which doesn't work. Mm. And you most times blame yourself. Yeah. Um, and we want to make sure that this book does fulfil the the reader's aspirations of being able to cook from it. Yeah. And get close to the recipes which they have experienced in Dishoom. And I think that was pretty much a mission for me when I was working on these recipes to make sure we we get them as closely 
as we could align them. Yeah. It's hard, obviously, as you guys know, because uh, the, rest, <laughs> the one thing which I mentioned in the opening um, uh, book launch party on, on Monday was that when the, the idea was first proposed to me, I said, yeah, it's easy. We have this recipe book, take it. <laughs> it's yeah. easy. But obviously, it wasn't that straightforward because you, the, the recipes which we have in the kitchens are very industrial and you have to make sure that you're cooking for for big volumes. Um, and when you try to scale them now, though you started from a small recipe and you scaled it up, but it's very hard to then go back to teaspoons and, and tablespoons. And um, that was a challenge for us because... Yeah. It's not one. It's not easy. One, the constraints of a home home cook's kitchen, uh, we had to get past that as well. Yeah. I think it happens with every uh, every cookbook writer, but mm. it was the first for us, and we didn't know about all of these things. So we've learned on the way. Uh, one brilliant thing, which um, which probably we did right, was to engage with someone called Nicola. We actually stumbled into um, into her on the way to, to you guys, and um, she had no prior knowledge of Indian food. I think that's, that was probably the best thing we, we could have mm. done because had we engaged with someone or had I done it, I would have actually ignored some of the smaller steps because yeah. f- for you it's simple and, and straightforward and you then just bypass them or you ignore them and you don't put as much detail as you normally would. But Nicola was actually uh, uh, very interesting because she actually st- stumbled upon uh, these steps which for us weren't a problem but for her it was it was tricky yeah and thus we could actually fix a lot of those problems which someone sitting in um, a remote village of middle england would, would face mm, yeah so i think that was an interesting step or process which i i think i'm really now kind of proud of that we we, we did that and made it work for uh, hopefully this book will be used uh, as much as uh, it looks beautiful on, on, a, on a coffee table cool, yeah yeah uh, this is Nicola Swift, who who yes. we know has been oh, yeah. pigeon a few times and yeah. is an amazing cook as well. So, she is very good, yes. Um, but that is that is the sort of is is famously the the tricky thing for for chefs who, who are just so used to doing big volumes to suddenly have to translate that into the home kitchen with home ovens and um, so you've you've got a good one in, in Nicola. And what's yeah. so what's your story? How did you end up um, running the Dushum Kitchen Empire? Um. <laughs> <laughs> That's really big words. Uh, we we run a humble kitchen. Um, I actually joined Dishume back in 2010, uh, a month before we opened the first one in Covent Garden. Wow. I was working with um, the hotel group back home in India called ITC Hotels. Uh, we had uh, we had a collaboration with Starwood, so we we were running the luxury collection brands of Starwood. Um, some really beautiful hotels I, w- I worked in. So we had ranging from five star luxury to resort properties in some really remote and beautiful parts of India. Uh, collection of 76 odd properties back then. I think there are more than 100 now. Mm. So it was a really big uh, hotel chain. Um, and they are actually very well known for Indian food. So the branding of the Indian restaurants was um, was not a thing uh, 20, 30 years back in India. And I think they were the first one who came up with that idea of having a branded restaurant. Uh, unfortunately, it didn't work outside the hotels. I think this still needs, needs to be a five-star hotel environment to, to cater to that kind of clientele but I think um, it was very interesting that they thought about it um, so they came up with this um, really amazing brand called Bukhara I don't know whether you guys heard of that or not but there is only one sure. Bukhara in in, in Delhi uh, um, Moria and it was one of the 50 best restaurants in the world for a long long time um, so I was very fortunate to be able to train in that kitchen and as I told earlier it was a very secretive kitchen where everything was a secret and we worked with master chefs who've been uh, passed on all the knowledge from generation to generation. So 
for them to have a young kid in their kitchen was not a thing. Yeah. So it, it, it's a funny thing, but um, as an apprentice, as a young cook, um, they give you such things to do that which frustrates you. Yeah. So I was given to peel ginger, for example, for literally weeks, and and and, and, and you that think, was it. yeah, and you just give you're just given fifty kilograms of ginger, and you peel it all day long, and then you say this is not what I was here for. Uh, and eventually, the idea is to just frustrate them, and and they move on to something else or, or another cuisine, and um, this the the trade secret stays with them. But I was a bit. Um, be, bit thick-headed and I said look I'm not going to go anywhere this is what I'm here for I'm not going to move from this kitchen come what may. and I peeled the ginger and then moved on to garlic and eventually um, made stocks like hundreds of liters of stock you just stand in front of these big boiling kettles all day long make sure the stock is consistent and very thick and jelly-like but you know what I think even those steps teaches you a lot because the foundations you build on those are actually very 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 important and, and, and I realize it now yeah. After 20 years in the trade, that peeling ginger wasn't a bad thing. It actually teaches you a lot. I mean, having the right ratio of the ginger and the garlic, the right consistency of, of the paste, or the, or the jelly-like consistency of a good stock. All of that is the foundation of a really great meal, and you can't get it right unless you learn those steps. So, though the idea of them giving that to me was different, but I benefited from it. And one day, um, once, once you kind of uh, you have the tendency of just carry on, they do look at you and say, this guy is not going anywhere. Yeah. So they give up. And eventually, uh, I was told one day, I remember that very, very clearly that day, um, when my my chef told me, uh, there was a tandoor guy missing that evening, uh, service, he didn't turn up. And he said, how much have you learned? And he was like very strict guy. I said, I can do it. He said, step up. And used to have this one step before, in, in India, you have these very high tandoors. So you have always have a step to uh, to work on them. So almost like a platform. It's a step up. Mm-hmm. And that was like, um, I, I remember that like as if it was yesterday. My hands were shaking. I was like, this is my day. If I don't make it work today, I'm going back to the ginger and garlic yeah. back again. And thankfully, that was a brilliant evening for me and I never looked back. So he then started to trust me a little bit more. Um, I had this habit of just keeping my head down. And I had this another thing wherein I used, I used to be the first one into the kitchen and the last man out. Uh, and I gained so much respect from the staff because of that, that when the chef not used to be around, they used to teach me a lot because I was like down to earth and kept it like, tell me what you want, yeah. I'll do it for you. I think that served me really well. Just just be uh, nice to, to people. And I used to sit with the staff on the floor and eat with them because that's where they used to have their, their meal. And uh, I shared food, I shared their stories, I shared their family. And uh, I came from a very different background. And they all came from really diverse backgrounds from all over India. And sorry, I'm I'm going. probably ranting, but no, I, no, I, I think. Um, but the, what what made you want to be a cook? You know, to find your way to that kitchen and then work that hard. Where, yeah, where did that come probably from? Probably they needed to go back a little bit more uh, to to my to my mum. Um, she she was uh, she was a teacher for 35 years. She never had a time to cook, and um, I lost her in in 15. But um, God bless her soul. Um, she she um, she was a really hardworking woman, and uh, many a times I used to tell her that mum don't cook for lunch. I'll come and cook it uh, when I come back from school. So my dad was interested in cooking as well. So uh, my dad and myself used to cook uh, lunches right. many a times when when uh, we, used to, we wanted to give mum a break, and that sparked my interest in cooking. That is one reason. Second is my my dad was was a doctor, and he wanted me to be a doctor. 
Um, and I was a failure, by the way. So I wasn't the brightest student. And in India, it's, it's such a fierce competition to get into a medical school or engineering school that you have to be the top percentile to, to, to get into these schools. And I was clearly not good enough. So um, I had uh, this classical problem or a question as to what do I do once I was past my school. Uh, and someone said back in those days, uh, hotel management wasn't a big deal. Like people didn't know about that you could work in hotels. And someone told my mom that, have you tried um, hotel management? You should send your son there. He, he might do really well. He's interested in cooking. So I ended up in a catering college uh, in a very classical format of going to a catering school, learning it for three years, and then going, you know, um, doing an apprenticeship in, in hotels. So it was a very classic route for me, uh, though my, my dad didn't like it. He actually didn't speak to me for a long, long time after I became a chef. He was so upset <laughs> that I didn't fulfill his dream that we... So much so, I mean, it's a sad thing that he's, he's no more again, but uh, then I used to go back. And when once I made my mark in the, in the industry, I was doing really well. I was in Bombay and I was with this really fantastic company, very well-known chef uh, in Bombay. When, when I used to go back, I wanted to almost show off to him that, look, this is not bad, I'm doing really well. He never came to Bombay to, to stay with me. And when I used to go back, we never shared a meal on a dining table. So he never used to sit with me, he was so upset. <laughs> that he never sat together. We never sat together to have a meal. And I really regret that he didn't have a cave and saw what I was doing. Yeah, yeah. Me but too. this was kind of starting of that. And then, obviously, working in these kitchens and with these chefs is was a massive boost for me, at least. Because I think you, the, um, my mentor said one thing to me one day. He said, "This industry is really, really hard. You need to be cut out for it. Otherwise, you won't survive." And he said, "If you survive the first five years, then you are, then you're going to stay here." Otherwise, you won't leave this industry. And this happened exactly the way he said. So that's why the first five years, which was really, really tough, when you just literally do petty jobs and mm -hmm. not, not much learning there. But if you kind of you stay around, you, you, you do get um, what you, you do. So. Yeah. And so your brigade at Dishoom, or your many brigades, presumably over the years, how, you know, how, how how have you tried to bring that to to them, and and how have you found the cooks of today in terms of their willingness to peel ginger for two months mm. or the equivalent? Really good question, actually, and one which I mull over many times in my in my my own time. Look, I think they're good and bad. Um, I have a brigade of 170 chefs today who work across seven sites. Um, some of them been with me for literally day one, like my one of my area chefs. Uh, he was my sous chef in Covent Garden. Um, the Covent Garden head chef was a grill chef uh, with me in Covent Garden again. So um, I've been really fortunate that people's, people were, people stuck around long enough to be uh, to be where they are today. Uh, and and they hel that helps me a lot to make sure that we could teach the next generation. But one thing which, which I feel um, is, is kind of missing is, I think a couple of things. One is, I think people don't have patience these days. So I think they want everything instant. I think it's, it's unfortunately, it's time when everything is instant. Like mm -hmm. you press a button, you, you, you get everything. Um, so that's, that's one which I wish uh, that that could change. Uh, another thing is, I think the, the environment in the industry um, in the last 20, 30 years, is being propagated in a very negative way. So I think we still um, propagate, oh, cool, 17-hour shifts, seven days, and it's all good. I think it's 
I, I actually grew up um, really liking that, that one day I'll be doing that. I did all of that as well when in, in my uh, younger days where I just didn't go home. I, I stayed in a hotel for literally weeks and then mm. it was all good, but you do hurt yourself. And I think the next generation of, of cooks is not going to like it because people people want a good balanced life. And I think it's our responsibility today in the industry to make sure we could give them that environment where the young talent could come in and be comfortable in, 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 in our kitchens. We've been working really hard. So we were the first one, by the way, in the Indian fraternity to move to a five-day-a-week for chefs. When I came in, in, including myself, we all worked six days um, for almost three years. And then one day I realized that it's not going to work because I'm burning myself and I've been doing this for 13 years. How long I'm going to survive? And when I looked at my team, they were looking tired. And literally, it was an overnight decision. We actually gave up uh, our bottom line margins for that. But we, we decided in a... In a um, blink of an eye that we should we should do this i think it was the right thing to do and maybe move to move to five days and i think doing a really nice eight hour shift really hard working eight hour shift but do it you you get two days off you can spend time with family you can spend time with your kids really really important mm. for for people today yeah so uh, mixed feeling i think the good and bad i mean on a flip side i have a brilliant chef Miha. i was talking to someone else this morning about him that um he was struggling to have these romali chefs and because of immigration, you don't have the talents coming into the, into the country, so you have a pool of chefs who everyone is going for. Suddenly, you don't have people who train in making Romali, which is very thin bread. Right. So it's almost like making making pizza, but in a very skillful way. So you have to do really very thin. The name, by the way, means handkerchief. So it's mm-hmm. that thin. As if you, I mean, the, the the test of a good Romali is that you could read a newspaper right. through it, or it's like the Philippines, people say that. And you then throw it in the air, so it's... It's kind of skill which you earn almost. It takes 10 years, 20 years for people to master that. And, and, and this brilliant Romanian guy who's been um, with us for now a good four years, uh, he was into it from day one. He was really interested and said, why don't you go ahead and do it? And um, he's as good today as any of my other chefs in four years. So I'm really proud of people like him who are genuinely interested and then you, then you support them. Uh, well, we have a, something called Kitchen Academy, which again started back in fifteen. And the reason was I had some of these guys, like these gems, who wanted to learn. And uh, one, we were all busy. So I thought we would never get time otherwise if we not formalize something. And obviously, we were battling with this problem of skill shortage, wherein we, we were not getting the talent we, we needed to, to run, uh, run our kitchens. So we started something called a Kitchen Academy, which is basically uh, a program which we run for a year. So anyone is eligible if you've been with us for, for one year and you, have, you fulfill some, some other criteria. Uh, for example, you need to learn three or four sections before you get to Kitchen Academy. But then once you come into Kitchen Academy, you are then taken over by me. Uh, and there's another chef I work with. We then take you on a very structured course for one year. During that time, you, you learn the management skills of account, right, right down from accounting to food safety, uh, a pretty um, enhanced course there, to learning how to make a Romali, for example. Um, and, and Mihai went to the Kitchen Academy, and he's, he's going to be graduating next month. We're going to promote him to a junior sous chef. And that's a story which I really, really uh, love. I mean, I have uh, Salim, another star, who actually joined as a kitchen porter back in uh, 2011. He just walked through the door. I was I was sitting in the kitchen and doing the paperwork, and he walked up to me and said, do you have a job for me? I said, what you can do? He said, I, I can cook, but I'm, I'll take whatever you give me. I did not have a chef job. I said, would you wash pots and pans? I have a kitchen porter position in the weekend. And he said, yeah, I'll take whatever. He jumped into the kitchen that day and he proved his metal. Like he was so cool and so charming that he changed that department of kitchen porters, which is really, really hard, as you guys would know. 
and eventually we take took him in kitchen and now he 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 went to the kitchen academy i think in the, as a second batch in 16 and and graduated to be a junior sous chef so there are many more stories like that because um, i think that it, a lot of that comes across about dishum sort of always has has done you know the way that the company is like you said to to sort of make a snap decision and and lose your bottom line to go to five days or to set up something like kitchen academy where you're in that mode of you you guys are opening restaurants and and expanding but to sort of take that pause and mm. And do that. And I think people sort of know that about Dishoom. You know, uh, like when was, they talk about Hawksmoor or something, it's a good company. You know, I was going to ask sort of what what else you've done. So those are sort of two obviously fantastic, very practical things: five day week and Kitchen Academy. There's a sort of more nebulous things that surround kind of company culture and um, how we treat each other. And, and what have you done as a company on that side of things? The the more difficult to pin down um, way of of working with one another mm. that's a very vague question do you, do you see what no, I mean? I, I completely understand that um, I, I think you, you're pointing to a very sensitive area which a lot of people actually just ignore I think this rift the classical rift between for example from the house and back of the house the past becomes a battle line and suddenly you have flares going up people are arguing with each other we actually so so I work with someone Brian by the way let me give a bit of a <coughs> background of this. Brian is ops director for Dishoom and Brian and I work together to, to, to manage operations in Dishoom obviously. From day one we had this philosophy when Brian was a general manager and I was the head chef in Covent Garden that we need to change that. I think that was wrong and I think we, we both were, um, were facing issues because of that. We had to manage staff and then the expectations and then uh, incidents at the back of it. And we, we, we changed fundamentally how we work. So, we, we, so the way Dishoom works today is when you have a GM and a head chef they don't report to each other. Like classically, you have the HR reporting to the channel manager. You still probably have that on dotted lines, but they are partners pretty much for us. And they run a business. So it's a very micro environment wherein they're given a site, they manage the site as if it's their own business. And they're partner in that business. And this is how we treat them. And we pay up, we, we really work hard to make sure that relationship between them works really well. If it doesn't, Brian, I'll jump in immediately. And, and whether we take them out for, for, a, for a walk or whatever, we need to do to make sure that they come together as, as a team. Uh, but that was really, really important. That was the key for us to be, uh, I think that played a major part in our success, I would say. It's yeah. a big statement to make, but I think I really believe in that. That When they start to work together, the team does. And suddenly you don't have that kind of a negative in mind when people are either don't like them or, or saying things uh, behind your back. And I think suddenly it was one team. And they all just go along together, they just party together, they just enjoy time together, they just be there together and think supporting each other. And that was really, really important and cool for us. Mm. And that was another thing which I'm really proud of that we, we did that really early. And we still we still don't take our eyes off that because every day you have new people coming in, people are stepping up into, into senior roles. And I think if you come from outside, especially, uh, and the digital culture is very different, you, you, you almost get a shock mm. as to, wow, this is very unclassical. How do I, how do I fit in? But eventually, if you're, if you're made to assume you, you do, uh, or we, we help you to do that, to make sure you, you do come along and uh, get disumified. <laughs> How have you found expanding outside of London? Uh, hard. Yeah, it wasn't easy. Uh, it was a very random decision, by the way, to go to Edinburgh, first of all. Uh, <laughs> How we did, did that come about? We did no homework. Yeah. It was why we opening there. 
apart from the fact that we went there one day and we liked the building. It was beautiful. I don't know whether you've been to Edinburgh, no, but it's a really beautiful, great building. And we stood in front of it and we said, wow, this is nice. And you show me I would be fantastic. <laughs> and there's a beautiful square right in front of it. So we, we could where, imagine. Where in Edinburgh, is it? So it's St. Andrew's Square. Right. Just behind um, uh, Princess Street. Yeah, so okay. it, it's, yeah. you know, it's not it's quite a square. Uh, so not in the hustle and bustle of, of tourists, but not far from them as well. Now overlooking a really beautiful square, which comes to life in winters as well as in summer. So we just love, we just fell in love with that site. And said, let's do it. So there was no kind of um, proper thinking pretty much. Like we didn't think about whether we have enough people in the city or how would we do the trade. But, but luckily or thankfully, I think we're doing really well in, in Edinburgh now. But it took us a long time. Brian and I actually lived in Edinburgh for four months. Really? Yeah, we actually hired a flat there and we literally lived in the city. And we pretty much worked seven days and from morning till evening, we used to be in the restaurant. Um, oh, wow. Supply chain was difficult because we was we, we grew organically. Mm. And in London, it's easy because you could just ask a supplier, can you drop this here as well? And it was, then it, it's, it was as straightforward as that. But when you went to Edinburgh, we, we literally used to work with some really tiny, small suppliers. Like I remember this honey guy used to come on a bicycle dropping some really cool honey bottles to us. And the volume was really small. We could survive on that. But when we talked about, can you, can you deliver in Edinburgh? He looked at us like, are you crazy? I can't buy to Edinburgh anymore. So we had these classical problems of expansion. Um, but then we found some really cool in Edinburgh and locally to like, we, we use a bacon uh, from... Ramses of Kaluk, who is a local supplier, really great guys, and um, so much so that we now use them everywhere. So we started them in Edinburgh right. because we had to find, we used to work with Ginger Pig here. Yeah. And then we, when we went to Edinburgh, Ginger Pig said we can't deliver in Edinburgh. So uh, it came, I think expansion came with its own set of problems. But I think, I really feel that we navigated around them really well. It took a long time and it was really hard work to, to go and meet this, uh, this uh, for example, Ramses, or to find, um, a good dairy supplier there who literally and it was Edinburgh is beautiful by the way being Scotland actually gives you access to some really amazing produce and, and ingredients so we were very blessed to be able to do that but I think it was hard uh, Manchester was relatively easier because once you set up the supply chain I think it becomes a bit easier mm. for you and have you noticed uh, you know a, a, a difference in the Scottish palate or the Manche- Manchester palate <laughs> the Mancun- you know in Manchurian, terms of yeah. what the best sellers are in terms of uh, something that does incredibly well in one mm. place and somehow doesn't in another is, or is, does everyone just want the bacon naan and their uh... I think it's hard to, 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 to tell because I think we have a very, very similar menu as you guys know that we, we do a pretty much a standard edition menu and then you have a, a side special which anchors a side um, side specials we, we, we pay a lot of attention to to make sure that we could cater to uh, to the place we're we, we going um, so um, yes that we did made sure that we, we could we could look at the local uh, requirements and, and cater to that but mo- most time we didn't we didn't find it hard actually people love bacon Arnold as much as they love in London mm-hmm. uh, in Edinburgh as well and so much uh, for that matter in Manchester as well so generally um, there is obviously um, differences in for example even in London you see that Kensington sells more cocktails than, than Covent Garden and so on and so forth so there is always a geographical driven um, sales mix mm-hmm. but in general, I think people people of dal everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. we still sell buckaloots of dal in in Edinburgh and so in Manchester. And how I mean, Covent Garden isn't that huge, but I know that like say the King's Cross site is a very big site, and and you know that came later after you'd done the mm. first ones. But has Dishoom for you like how different does it feel to what you first set up? In that not that just you have more sites, but 
the sites that you do have are yeah. incredibly busy. You yeah. know, volume-wise, you're doing huge volumes. You know, we, we were actually discussing that <laughs> before coming in here, that I was looking at the new corn garden kitchen. Um, but to answer your question, um, when we when I built corn garden, I was not very much involved in the, in the kitchen planning back then, uh, but I, I did the shortage kitchen. And we, we never thought that these sites will get this busier as they are today. So all our kitchens from Shoreditch, King's Cross, Conway, they were meant to be uh, for the site uh, back in 13, 14 when we opened them. But now they're very different looking sites. And as you mentioned, very, very busy. So, I mean, we've learned the lesson <laughs> and we've been trying to build uh, bigger, better kitchens. I think also once you you build two or three, you always you always learn from, from the, from the uh, economics of those kitchens as to how you can make it better. Um, Kavi, who is one of the founders, Kavi and I work very closely. We go to Bombay a lot, and um, we all always like to experiment. Like we 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 tried the Synergy Grill back in 2012 when no one knew about Synergy Grill, um, and we we did we we bought this really. We thought it was very cool. Well, uh, we bought this um, conveyor style uh, grill from uh, Birmingham back then and we met this really cool guy who sold it to us. He's like, that's really cool that you just load the kebabs on this side and you can actually take it out on the other side. It just didn't work because it was meant to be doing only chic kebab. It was, that machine was meant to be for the chic kebab factories basically. Because it's just one product and you can just time it and you leave mm. it. But we were doing nine, ten different grills and they were changing every six months. So right. um, it just didn't work. So we, we made a mistakes, but we were always experimenting. Like we had this uh, classical problem in shortage where the kitchen was really, really hot. And we moved the entire curry section, which was the hottest section of, of our kitchens, into inductions. And we bought this really cool CookTech induction machines from America, and they work really well for us. So we had our, we had our success. We made our mistakes as well. So, um, yeah, I mean, I mean, we've been learning, and we're still learning, to be honest. I think every and single the, time I build a kitchen, I start from scratch, pretty much. And with the with the with what the business is, people could say they just... If hundreds of people just go through the doors perception wise obviously people probably have a different view on it now and from what you must have initially thought it was going to be like you were just opening a restaurant as opposed to opening this machine mm. you know that's yeah. doing such big numbers like from a personal point of view I mean less so on the technical sort of side of it to be honest I think we didn't change the way we work we, we still pretty much work um, the way I used to run, run Covent Garden and trust me I think it's, it's harder because I, I oh, sometimes yeah. um enforce it for, for the right reason that we want to make sure that the quality is right. Like, um, we still keep the dal on a hot plate for 24 hours. It still stays there. You go to any kitchen, there's a pot of dal you can see which is simmering on, on a hot plate. And I, on and off, I get, you know, these crumblings from the style. It's not practical. You can't do it anymore. But I always kind of push back. I said, if you stop doing it, you, you lose this charm of, of, of this technique or this process which makes the shoe more tissue shoe yesterday. Uh, or, for example, um, uh, from day one, I had the, the recipe files printed for every section, and every section has a weighing scale. So in Dishum, the rule is when you come in, however experienced you are, whether you are a chef with 30 years experience, you come and look at the recipe, and you weigh everything, and you make it like that. Even if, even when I go to kitchen, I, I don't trust my instinct. Once I have devil dish, at that point, obviously, I experiment a lot, and, and we, we chop and change things. But once you lock down the recipe and you printed it, it becomes sacred document for us. So even when I go back in my kitchen and I cook something, I actually refer back to the recipe. And that's a golden rule, and I actually don't change it. And again, I get a lot of pushback on it. When a new chef comes from outside, they're not used to that environment. It's like, what am I doing? It's mm. such a busy kitchen, and you, have, you ask me to weigh everything. And I said, yes. And this is the way we work. And that's how we maintain the consistency. We don't have uh, centralized 
units. I mean, we every kitchen makes everything from scratch. And when you, when you do that, you have to make sure that how do you make sure dal in Edinburgh tastes as good as a dal in Carnaby, or for that matter, anything on the menu. Uh, and then it comes down to the, to the processes. However, ugly and hard they look, I think there's a trade-off. So... So you, if, if you say you're sort of always developing and playing around with, with new dishes, that must have to come at the cost of some old dishes, and, or, or, you know, with the menu just constantly growing. Yeah. We did that. Uh, I think you're right. I think in, in the middle years, wherein we were not smart enough, we just kept adding mm. more complexity. And dishing menu is very complex. I, have to, I might sound arrogant by telling you that, but I think it's very, very complex mm. menu in terms of how it looks and feels, and I, I've been trying really hard to kind of simplify it. It's not easy now to unmind it, but um, we, we have a rule now wherein we, you have to lose the dish to add a dish. I think you have to do it, otherwise it just becomes an ending and you can't maintain that quality mm. now. So by 15, 14, 15, we, we did that. We just kept adding more cooler dishes, and every time I went to Bombay, I found something really nice and new and came back, oh, we should have this on the menu, let's add it. And then we kept adding that, and breakfast menu becomes so bulky, and, and so is the main menu, and so on and so forth. But now I think we, we have a rule. It's very hard. I think people have genuine love for, for these dishes. Sometimes we discounted big time. Like we, we took calamari from our menu, and that was the highest seller on a small plate menu. What was, and sorry? The, the, the dishum calamari. Right. But it just didn't fit sure in the story. No. Yeah. Uh, we just didn't feel comfortable with that dish, um, and we just wanted to take it off. And it was, people asked, are you? guys crazy like why are you taking your best seller I say, yeah, it just doesn't fit there mm. and we have much much more cooler dishes to 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 introduce so we took it off and um, we immediately had a, like twitter had a reaction like why did you think of kamari and i didn't realize pe- people have that kind of genuine love for uh, for these dishes um, but but it, it went and uh, we still get or people co- coming on and off people who coming after a long time for example and they say oh where's kamari gone mm. um well, yeah, I mean, we, we do that down. We, we have kind of a rule that please take one dish out, one dish in. And, and um, just how complicated is it, is it operationally <laughs> to do the numbers of covers you're doing in terms of ordering systems? I mean, presumably it's deeply automated by now, but even just like the flow of service and front of house. Mm-hmm. I mean, just to us who've got a 28-seat restaurant, it's the, and you do that in about five seconds flat, but... Um, you know, the mind boggles slightly. Yeah, yeah. yeah you're right. I think, we, for example, in King's Cross, on a busy Saturday, we do around 2,000 covers <laughs> in a day and um, 400 cover breakfast. It's just crazy to hear that. I think it won't work, as I said earlier. You have to you have to stick to your processes. If they break down, the operation breaks down. Mm. Uh, and it all boils down to that. And I think uh, if you come to our kitchen on a Saturday, you wouldn't feel that it's crazy. Right. Because everyone knows what they're doing. And it's just it's like this cocks who just fit in at the precise time and it just moves on I think it's hard to kind of tell you what, what makes mm. it work I think it's just over the period of time we accumulated all of these processes which is uh, behind the scenes like for example weighing the recipe and making it mm. so that you don't have to deal with consistency problems because the moment you have a dish coming back to the kitchen it throws back the kitchen by almost 10 minutes mm. And we don't have that problem where a lot of food doesn't come back because it's just consistent. Mm. Um, though I'm not claiming that we have perfect operation and sure. no dish comes back. We do have our own problems and sometimes do dishes do come back to the kitchen not being good or people just don't like them. Uh, but most times I think we we have these different sections working in sync with each other, including from the house. Like the pass is the key. 
uh, we have the expos who've been with us for literally three, four years. I train them. I get involved in the training to make sure they understand as much as the chef does. So we don't have the chefs outside. We have the chef inside of the kitchen where he's dispensing the food, making sure he's checking it. But traditionally, you have the chef outside who's garnishing mm. and sending the food out. We don't have that. We trust our expos. And I, I now have learned that expos needs to be as learned as the chef. So they need to know exact portioning, exact garnishing, exact plating of every single dish. If they don't know it, I'm losing a net, a safety net. Mm. Because if I, and there are chefs when you don't have an experience expo, or if you're training someone, suddenly you see the the issues start to flare up. Um, so yeah, I mean there are a lot of things which which needs to come together um, mm. for it to be uh, to be able to manage that volume. Mm. It's not, it's not easy. It's hard. Amazing. Well, well I'm big big Dishoom fan. Thank um, you. Yeah, as am I. We haven't been for a dishing breakfast a while, Sam. No, you know? no, it was because we, we opened the sandwich shop, so we've been eating too many sandwiches. Right. Yeah, uh, <laughs> but the people at Dishoom actually at King's Cross they sent us over some uh, vouchers right. for breakfast sandwiches. You must come. I, th- I think I think our manager and our uh, head chef have pocketed them, so they I they never reached us. <laughs> Should we hit Narvid with a quick fire? Yeah. What's your go-to dinner that you cook yourself at home? Biryani. That's quite the undertaking, though, no? Yeah. <laughs> it is. Um, my wife is a very good cook, by the way. And right. She comes from Hyderabad, which is a southeastern region of India. Very well known for, for food. Um, and she's a very good cook. So um, the Hyderabadi biryani is actually very famous. A chicken biryani is a Hyderabadi style of biryani. Right. And very much influenced by by her recipe. Though we pay tribute to Britannia as well, which is one of the cafes in, in Bombay. So, yeah. Okay. Uh, what's on your bucket list, a place or a country you really want to visit that you haven't ever got to? Uh, Malaysia. I think, um, one, it's... I come from India, obviously, and in that region, it's very interesting for me. I've never been to Vietnam, for example, never been right. to Malaysia, and I think I really want to because those flavors are different, though very familiar. Right. And I think it could be really interesting to, to visit these, that, that country and see how, how they are yeah. in terms of food. What's on your bucket list, James? Country-wise. Country-wise, um, yeah. Well, I've never been to India, so that, yeah, going to have to be out there. Uh, you have to wear one hat forever. What kind of hat do you wear? Oh gosh, a tinker's cap. What's that? So, cap. so, so there is a what, there, like a little flat sort of like uh, a railway hat. Um, maybe I didn't understand the question, but let me let me give you the answer which I understood. Anyways, <laughs> um, we have this philosophy in the shoom that either you have a dish which comes from a very traditional background like a biryani or a nihari or, or a paya. Or we, we um, take inspiration from, from classics. Uh, and when we do that, I think the rule is that you have to don a Bombay hat. Okay. We call it a Bombay hat. And give, let me give you an example. Like, for example, the bacon on roll. If you tell someone in, on a Mumbai street, a vendor, street vendor, that some people eat this amazing bacon sandwich in, in London, how would he go about creating one? And this is how we, we do the menu dev around some of these dishes that he would definitely replace some nice bread with, with a naan. Yeah. Um, when it comes to herb, he would probably add coriander because that's the most accessible one. He would like to make it a bit more zingier and spicier, so we would have a spicy chili jam which, which we use. So um, 
I, I call it a bomber hat. So I, I tell my chefs that when they come up with the ideas, turn your bomber hat. Yeah, <laughs> you're right. dreaming of a dish. See, that was good. Maybe I didn't understand my, your question. No, but that's fine because I asked a silly question and you had a much better answer than uh, <laughs> than I would have got. And how how would this this um, street vendor feel about the cream cheese element? Yeah, I mean, he he probably might use yogurt. Or, or dahi. I mean, we use hung yogurt a lot of time. Maybe we use cream cheese because obviously you're ultimately make the dish work. But like Mimsa mess is another one, another example. We, we had this uh, interpretation of eaten mess on a menu for a long, long time. People loved it. But we dreamt up of a story of a, of a Mimsa uh, of Malabar Hills in Bombay, wherein uh, one day she was throwing a party and she told his her Indian cook to make eaten mess. And she handed over the recipe of eaten mess to him. And uh, obviously, he being an Indian cook, he added his own twist to it by adding gulkan, which is basically the pickled rose petal or the rose petal jam, which we use in India, um, to the mix. And certainly, it made the dish very interesting and uh, a very different interpretation of eatiness. And we, it, it was a super hit on, on the menu for a long, long time. Or the or the chili ice cream we, we, we do with the chocolate fondant today, mm. which is basically a really good ice cream, but with Kashmiri chili powder in it. So it looks really beautiful and nice and pinkish color. But when you have a bite and when you have a scoop of it, you ha- you get hit by the, the the chili at the back of your throat, and that brings a lot of kind of contrasting and interesting flavor when you eat with chocolate. So stuff like that, we just turn a bomber hat and then think, okay, what would someone do if he knows about the dish in in India? Yeah. Um, what's the best soup? Tom yum. Tom yum. I love that. Yeah. I love. I also like kalsoy. Um That's another favorite mm. of mine. But uh, yeah. yeah, tom yum is my new favorite. It was fur for a while. Now it's tom yum. Yeah, so it's really I had some pretty good kalsoy back in March. So oh, yeah. yeah, it's going going high up for me. All right. Um, and what's the? Do you have any weird or useless skills? <laughs> oh, useless skills. I wanted to acquire how to play a guitar, right. so much so that I bought a guitar. I paid someone to, to teach me, yeah. but it took one lesson. Oh, I really? paid him for the entire year. <laughs> Never learned it. The guitar broke. <laughs> so, <laughs> useless. <laughs> All right. Um, and the other part of the uh, quiz is overrated, underrated, or correctly rated. I was, can I jump oh, in the quiz? Quick, uh, quick fire. Yeah. Because I was going to ask it earlier, and then I thought maybe it was in your quick fire. Okay. And you're not allowed to say dull. What's your favorite dish? On Tashim. Dal. You're not allowed to say dal. <laughs> I'm not allowed to say dal. Okay, um, chicken biryani. There you go. Solid. Yeah. Love a biryani. Uh, okay, so it's overrated, underrated, or correctly rated? That's, uh, that's a tricky one. <laughs> dogs. Oh, overrated. Yeah? No. Yeah. Are you a cat person or just. I don't have a pet. Yeah. It's very stern. <laughs> it's hard work, honestly. I think um, having a pet, you have to make sure you care for them. Yeah, that and is part of the deal. Yeah. yeah, and if you can't do it, <laughs> yeah, I can't. Uh, neither can you. We both gave our dogs away. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Yeah. But both yeah. to our parents. <laughs> yeah. So. Um, London to live in. Overrated, underrated, or correctly rated? Hard one, honestly. Uh, I'll tell you the reason. Um, I, I hated Bombay. I lived there for nine years. I hated Bombay when I was there because of traffic and pollution and whatnot. I used to complain about everything. When I go back now, I want to go back and, and settle down in Bombay. So I think cities like Bombay and London are like that, wherein you hate them and you are in it, but yeah. you have so much love for it. And nostalgia kicks back in immediately the moment you leave these cities. So difficult one to answer. Okay. Um, eggs. 
Overrated, underrated, or correctly rated? I think underrated. Um, we, we use a lot of eggs for our breakfast menu. Um, and one thing which I feel is that I'm talking to two people who obviously know how to um, how to cook, don't, and don't you, you guys are accomplished yeah. um, chefs. But I, I don't think that the the egg cooking uh, received is it's due. I think it, it's 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 a skill. By, by the way, I think cooking eggs. People think it's very easy, and some many times you kind of refer. You don't even know how to cook an egg. And actually, yeah. it's very tricky to cook an egg because we, we learn that out of in a really hard way. Where we have to make sure the egg yolk on a kima um, parido, for example, needs to be a runny yolk. And when you when you do it for a thousand people on, on a Saturday, it's not easy. Mm. And you need to be very very skillful to be able to achieve that. Um, so I I, I think um, it hasn't ceased to do yet. I think we need to pay attention to it and teach our young cooks. Just while we're on eggs and breakfast. Uh, I think the most underrated dish at Dishoom is the chicken liver breakfast dish with those little... You haven't taken it off, have you? Oh. <laughs> it's off the menu. I'll be thinking of. Because it's so it's underrated. T- it's so underrated. Is it, your, low, is it your worst-selling dish? Not no, chicken well, liver at breakfast, except for me. I, I think chicken liver at breakfast is something which I, f- which I feel people are a little uncomfortable it's with. Challenge. I think sure. it would be a fantastic small plate for an, on an all-day menu. Is so we're not. Book? I think it is. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we're not planning to take it off completely. I think the idea is probably to bring it back on a main menu, one day it's there. Yeah. Chicken lives on know. toast. Yeah. No, but there was. That's not the one on the menu, or the. Uh, maybe it's it's been a while since I've had it, but it's with these little shoes. So you have this on the menu now. Okay, okay, it's changed a little bit, but it's so delicious. It is. Right, yeah, yeah, I personally love it. It's challenging yeah, though. It's challenging. Yeah. Like another example is, we did the the lamb brain once. And it's such a cool idea. I mean, we did the lamb um, brain popcorn. We call it beja, beja popcorn. And I personally like eating brain. And um, I thought everyone would love it. <laughs> and stayed there on the menu for almost six months. People did order it. So people who ordered they they actually mm. liked it. We actually treat a lot of our, a lot of our staff <laughs> in eating that. Because yeah. we knew that if we tell them this is brain, people would just opt out. Uh, and once you, they pop it in their mouth, they just like it. Yeah. So... Did you not? I feel there was brain of some sort on the menu when I went yes, four still, or so weeks yeah. ago. So in King's Cross, we have yeah. the brains with the with the nihari. So we have this this lamb stew which we do in in King's yeah. Cross, and it's served with the brain. But again, we make it optional to make sure people could opt out if they don't want it. But I just thought so it's it so cool for somewhere that's as you know, I don't want to say crowd pleasing because that sounds like a, a negative, but somewhere as hugely popular as Dishoom and and quite broad in its sort of demographic to have the balls to well the guts to say uh, we're putting brains on the menu so it was really cool I didn't order them because I'm that's sort of draw the line at that but um, <laughs> and I was with the kids but um, nah. you know what we don't think like that I think that probably is the reason why, why we do these things um, because for us for me especially when I'm in a dream of a dish or if I have a very iconic dish to bring on the menu I don't think about uh, people's perception hmm. for me it is like we did paya for Eid a couple of years back it's basically the lamb trotters and back home, I eat pie at home. Like we, I come from a North Indian background, and meat for us, and especially in a Muslim family, it's like we can't dream of a meal without mm. meat. And we used to eat these uh, buffalo uh, trotters, and they was they just get simmered, especially in winters overnight. And then you, you, you wake up with this with the kind of of, of the of the pie simmering, 
and you literally waiting i'm used to eat for breakfast by the way mm-hmm. <laughs> really hardcore but we used to have this really nice hot bowl of of uh, these trotters for breakfast uh, so i grew up in, in that, and for me i think these forgotten dishes and the art of doing these dishes i think need to be brought back to mainstream this is how i see it maybe if, even if just two people order it for me i think it's fine and if they like it i i win mm-hmm. so we don't keep them long enough sometimes because obviously commercially they need to make sense so um but we don't shy away from doing these things i think for me it's just a matter of it i mean when i did that by the way so many people got so nostalgic about it because they they don't see these dishes on the menus these days and so no oh you have paya I, you need to know the dish obviously to react like that but people who know this i think they get blown away that we did halim is another one like we did halim on our king's cross menu for a long time and it's basically pounded wheat uh, and barley together with meat it's especially a savory porridge Right. And it was in Covent Garden menu, and we we used to get a lot of mixed reaction. Like we used to get people like because of perception of of having a porridge to be savoury is not there. People just don't expect it to be like that. So sometimes when the server used to make a mistake, we used to get the dish sent back to the kitchen because people's expectations just didn't met. Yeah. But people who knew Halim, they were like, "Wow, in London, can you get Halim? Wow, how cool is that?" I'm sold on that. Yeah, definitely. Thank you so much for your time. It's a pleasure. Thank you so Thank much you for the enjoyed it. I would be hightailing it straight to Covent Garden Shoe right after this, but I'm not going to stand in a queue for an hour. <laughs> but we'll be back very soon. By the way, you can book. I mean, there's a misconception that you can't get into Dishoo and it's all about queue. No, you can actually book. Uh, you only need to have six people for dinner. So that's the only kind yeah, of... Yeah, we haven't got any friends, though. So. Oh, um, we can come along. We, do, we just like one another. That's it. All right, and listen up, everybody. Please buy the book. It's Dishoo from Bombay with Love. It's published by Bloomsbury. It's out now. It is Bloomsbury. Tomorrow, yeah. Yeah, it's out. Yeah, so this comes out on Monday. Right. Uh, It is out now, and it's absolutely beautiful, genuinely, and I cannot wait to get in amongst its many secrets. Uh, Till next week. Bye. Thank you. Goodbye. Thank you.